1987, a member of the Fulani tribe in Nigeria stumbled across a chance discovery, a canoe near Lake Chad. Radiocarbon dating of a sample of charcoal found near the site dates the canoe to 8,500 years old. It is the second oldest boat ever discovered. Amazingly, this canoe was very artistic and built by skilled craftsmen for whom this was nothing new. Unlike much later Egyptians, Sumerians and others, we don't know much about this tribe or this group of people because they did not leave us with their stories. But it, we do know that this was an advanced society. That canoe was found in a waterlogged state resting on a sandy bed. Layers of clay lay between it and the surface which protected it in an oxygen-free environment. That is why, when found thousands of years later, it was in some condition that we could recognise. While the chap that stumbled across it only did so because they found that Lake Chad had shrunk by 95% in 40 years, and therefore it could be assumed that the area of the village of Dafuna where the man who found the canoe lived would have been part of the lake's flood pain in the distance past. Is that drying up of the lake? Is that change in climate a natural phenomenon or is it entirely the result of human activity? That is the topic of this episode of the podcast. So what's it like outside? Cold, rainy, nearly freezing, snowy, or is it hot and humid? Weather is the state of the atmosphere, describing, for example, the degree to which it is hot or cold, wet or dry, calm or stormy, clear or cloudy. The climate, however, is something else. Climate is the long-term average of weather, typically averaged over a period of 30 years. It denotes the mean and variability of meteorological variables over a time potentially spanning months to millions of years. When you think about climate change, what typically comes to mind? Global warming, melting icebergs, receding glaciers, crazy weather patterns, long-term doom and gloom, civilizational collapse, eroding coastlines, end of the forests, end of life, end of the world. Then when you think about solutions, what comes to mind? Humans, bad? Well, that's about it, right? When you think about solutions, you also think, well, maybe carbon neutral, recycling, waste not, what not, etc. I fear that this does not explain the complexity that is the lifespan of climate activism, the politics of the environment and the new, now massive, climate change industrial complex. In this pod, I want to look at every nook and cranny of the climate change philosophy. I want to tackle climate change. Let's start with climate variability. What is it? Well, climate variability includes all the variations in the climate that last longer than individual weather events. Climate system, Earth's climate arises from the interaction of five major climate system components. Atmosphere, the hydrosphere, atmosphere is air, hydrosphere is water, Cyrosphere, ice and permafrost, the lithosphere, Earth's upper rocky layer, and the biosphere, living things. 
Climate is the average weather, typically over a period of 30 years, as I said, and it is determined by a combination of processes in the climate system, such as these ocean currents and wind patterns. Circulation in the atmosphere and oceans is primarily driven by what is known as solar radiation, and that transports heat from the tropical regions to other regions that receive less energy from the sun. The water cycle also moves energy throughout the climate system. In addition to all that, different chemical elements necessary for life are constantly recycled between the different components of the earth. This climate system receives almost all its energy, or actually all its energy, from the sun. The climate system also radiates energy into space. The balance of incoming and outgoing energy and the passage of the energy throughout the climate system determines what we call the Earth's energy budget. This energy budget accounts for the balance between the energy that the Earth receives from the Sun and the energy that the Earth radiates back into space after having distributed throughout the five components of the Earth's climate system. It's kind of like breathing in and out. This planet has had a long history of climate change. By recent, I mean 10,000 years or so ago. So we've had a history of climate change going back way before 10,000 years, and certainly even in those 10,000 years. To me, 10,000 years is recent. But we've had good historical records within those 10,000 years, and scientific evidence for changes prior to those 10,000 years and within the past 10,000 years to back that up. Let's go way back now to the Holocene glacial retreat, which is a geographical phenomenon that involved the global deglaciation of glaciers that previously had advanced during the last glacial maximum. Ice sheets retreated around 19 to 20,000 years ago and accelerated again after 15,000 years ago. The Holocene started with abrupt warming about 11,700 odd years ago, resulting in rapid melting of the remaining ice sheets of North America and Northern Europe. The African Humid Period, also known as AHP, is a climate period in Africa during the late Holocene geological period when North Africa was wetter than today. The covering of much of the Sahara Desert by grasses, trees and lakes was caused by the changes in the Earth's orbit around the Sun. Changes in vegetation and dust in Sahara, which strengthened the African monsoon and increased greenhouse gases, which may imply that anthropogenic global warming could result in a shrinkage of the Sahara Desert. Interestingly, during the preceding last glacial maximum, the Sahara contained extensive dune fields and was mostly uninhabited. It was much larger than today, but its lakes and rivers such as Lake Victoria and the White Nile were either dry or at low levels. The humid period began about 14,600 to 14,500 years ago. The AHP led to a widespread settlement of the Sahara and the Arabian deserts and had a profound effect on African cultures, 
including the birth of the pharaohic civilizations of Egypt. In the good old days, pre-pharaohs, people lived as hunter-gatherers until the agricultural revolution and domestication of cattle, goats, sheep, etc. They left archaeological sites and artefacts, such as one of the oldest ships in the world, and rock paintings such as those in the cave of swimmers and in the Archaeus Mountains. Earlier humid periods in Africa were postulated after the discovery of these rock paintings in now inhospitable parts of the Sahara. When the period ended, humans gradually abandoned the desert in favour of regions with more secure water supplies such as the Nile Valley and Mesopotamia where they gave rise to early complex human civilizations. The Holocene Climate Optimum Warm Event consisted of increases of up to 4 degrees Celsius near the North Pole. In one study, winter warming of 3 to 9 degrees Celsius and summer of 2 to 3 degrees Celsius in northern and central Siberia were recorded. Northwestern Europe experienced warming, but there was cooling in southern Europe. The average temperature change appears to have declined rapidly with latitude and so essentially no change in mean temperature is reported at low and middle latitudes. The so-called 8.2 kiloyear event was a sudden decrease in global temperatures that occurred about 8,200 years before the present time, or around 6,200 BC, and it lasted for the next two to four centuries. It defines the start of the North Gripian Age in the Holocene period. Milder than the younger Dira's cold spell before it, but more severe than the Little Ice Age after it, this 8.2 kilo year cooling was a significant exception to general trends of the Holocene climatic optimum. During the event, atmospheric methane concentration decreased by 80 BBP, an emission reduction of 15% by cooling and drying at a hemispheric scale. Drier conditions were apparently noted in North Africa and East Africa, who suffered five centuries or so of general drought. In West Asia, especially around the Mesopotamia area, the 8.2 kilo year event was a 300 year aridification and cooling episode, which may have provided the natural force for Mesopotamian irrigation, agriculture and surplus food production, which were essential for the earliest forms formations of classes in urban life. However, changes taking place over centuries around the period are difficult to link specifically to the approximately 100-year abrupt event, as recorded most clearly in what became known as the Greenland Ice Cores. Around 3200-2900 BC, the Piora Oscillation was cold, perhaps not global, it became wetter in Europe and drier elsewhere, and it was linked to the domestication of the horse in Central Asia. Starting around 2200 BC, it probably lasted the entire 22nd century BC, and it has been hypothesized to have caused the collapse of the Old Kingdom in Egypt, as well as the Akkadian Empire in Mesopotamia and the Langzhou culture in Lower Yangtze River area. The drought may have also irrigated initiated sorry, the collapse of the Indus Valley civilization, with some of its population moving southeastwards to follow the movement of their desired habitat, as well as the migration of Indo-European speaking peoples into India. Fascinating, isn't it? 
The Middle Bronze Age cold period was a period of unusually cold climate in the North Atlantic region, lasting from about 1800 BC to about 1500 BC. It was followed by what became known as the Bronze, Bronze Age Optimum from about 1500 BC to 900 BC. During this period, a series of severe volcanic eruptions also occurred, including the Minoan eruption of 1620. All of these events combined are believed to have led to what became known as the Bronze Age Collapse. The late Bronze Age Collapse was a transition period in the Near East Anatolia and Aegean region and North Africa, the Caucasus, the Balkans and the Eastern Mediterranean, which took place from the Late Bronze Age to the Early Iron Age. It was a transition which historians believe was violent, sudden and culturally destructive and involved societal collapse for some civilizations. The palace economy of the Aegean region and Anatolia that had characterized the Late Bronze Age disintegrated, transforming into the small isolated village cultures of what became known as the Greek Dark Ages. The Iron Age Cold Period was a period of unusually cold climate in the North Atlantic region, lasting from about 900 BC to about 300 BC, with an especially cold wave in 450 BC during the expansion of ancient Greece. It was followed by what became known as the Roman Warm Period, which lasted from 250 BC to about 400 AD. This period was also called the Roman Climatic Optimum and was a period of unusually warm weather in Europe and the North Atlantic. Theopratius, I'm saying that wrong, was a Greek philosopher who wrote that the date trees could grow in Greece if they were planted, but that they could not set fruit there. That is the case today, interestingly enough, implying that the South Aegean mean summer temperatures in the 4th and 5th centuries BC were within a degree or two of modern ones, and that other literally fragments from the time confirm that the Greek climate then was basically the same as it is around AD 2000. Tree rings from the Italian peninsula in the 3rd century BC indicate a time of mild conditions there and that was the time of Hannibal crossing the Alps with imported elephants. That was around 218 BC. The extreme weather events of 535 to 536 AD were the most severe and protracted short-term episodes of cooling in the Northern Hemisphere in the last 2,000 years. The event is thought to have been caused by an extensive atmospheric dust veil possibly resulting from large volcanic eruption in the tropics or in Iceland. It is it effects were so widespread that it caused unseasonable weather crop failures and famines worldwide. Interestingly and famously, the Byzantine Roman historian Procopius recorded in 536 AD in his report on the wars with the Vandals, he said, quote, During this year, a most dreaded potent took place. For the sun gave forth its light without brightness, and it seemed exceedingly like the sun in eclipse, for the beams it shed were not clear." End quote. In 538 AD, the Roman statesman Cassidorus also stated that the light of the sun was weak and that crops had failed. Michael the Syrian, a patriarch of the Syriac Orthodox Church, recorded 
that during 536 and 537, the sun shone feebly for a year and a half. By the way, Michael the Syrian was writing in 1100s. The Gaelic-Irish annals recorded the following. A failure of bread in the year 536 AD. A failure of bread from the years 536 to 539 AD. Further phenomena were reported by a number of independent contemporary sources. Low temperatures, even snow during the summer, was reported in parts of China, causing widespread crop failures and famine. It is said, a dense dry fog in the Middle East, China and Europe occurred. We also believe that there was drought in Peru, which affected the Moshe culture. Then came what is known now as the medieval warm period. This was a time of warm climate in the North Atlantic region, lasting from around AD 950 to around the year 1250. It was likely related to warming elsewhere, while some other regions were colder, such as the tropical Pacific. Average global mean temperatures have been calculated to be similar to early mid 20th century warming. Possible causes of the medieval warm period include increased solar activity, decreased volcanic activity, and changes in ocean circulation. This period was followed by a cooler period in the North Atlantic and elsewhere, termed the Little Ice Age. It's assumed that it started around 1550, some argue 1250, or later, but it ended around 1850, and it can be broken down into three categories. Around 1460 to 1550, we have what we now call the spur minimum cold. From from 1656 to 1715, we have what we call the Maunder minimum low sunspot activity period, and I'll come back to that. 1790 to 1830, we have what we call the Dalton minimum low sunspot activity period, also resulting in colder temperatures. The year 1816 was called the year without a summer, caused by volcanic dust. Evidence suggests that the anomaly was predominantly a volcanic winter event caused by the massive 1815 eruption of Mount Tambora in April in the Dutch East Indies, in Dutch East Indies, what is now Indonesia. The eruption was the largest in at least 1,300 years, and perhaps exacerbated by the 1814 eruption of Mayon in the Philippines. The era since the year 1850 is called the Retreat of the Glaciers because of increased temperatures and the retreat of the glaciers. We are in that period, according to scientists, right now. So there is a history of major climate changing events leading to mass migrations, death, chaos, war, and so on. Over time, evidence also demonstrates that as humans supposedly get smarter, they also create technology to circumvent some of these climate impacts. After 1850 and the Industrial Revolution, but I would argue probably earlier, in fact as early as the Agricultural Revolution of about 5,000 years ago, we saw the arrival of the concept of human impact on the environment. This is mostly doom and gloom stuff. 
doom and gloom to changes to the biophysical environments and ecosystems, biodiversity and natural resources caused directly or indirectly by humans. This includes global warming, environmental degradation, mass extinction events and biodiversity loss, ecological crisis, including ecological collapse, doom and gloom. Other human activities that cause damage either directly or indirectly to the environment on a global scale include things like population growth, overconsumption, overexploitation, pollution, deforestation, just to name a few. Some of these problems include global warming and biodiversity loss that pose an existential risk to the human species. Human overpopulation is strongly correlated with those problems. Let's look at these human problems in turn. 1. Overconsumption. What well, this is where humans, yes, we, you and I, consume more from the Earth's resources than it actually has or can naturally replace very quickly. 2. Human overpopulation. As it says, too many people as of April 2021, today. We have currently today around 8 billion humans on the planet net-net. 3. Fishing and farming. Many farming techniques and mass fishing of oceans are also net-net bad for the environment. Irrigation often has downstream issues with the soil, for example. Land lost to agricultural needs. What about Brazilian environmentalists who cite that the Brazilian rainforest is making way for human farming? Meat production. The overpopulation of meat for humans in the form of pigs, cows, chickens and others can lead to increased methane in the atmosphere. There's also the argument against the use of palm oil because its extraction and consumption adds negatively to the earth. Global warming is the result of increasing atmospheric carbon dioxide concentrations which is caused primarily by the combustion of fossil fuel energy sources such as petroleum, coal and natural gas and to an unknown extent by the destruction of forests, increased methane, volcanic activity and cement production. Such massive alteration to the global carbon cycle has only been possible because of the availability and deployment of advanced human technologies ranging in application from fossil fuel exploration, extraction, distribution, refining, combustion of power plants and automobiles, etc., etc., including advanced farming practices. According to a 2006 United Nations report, 18% of all greenhouse gas emissions found in the atmosphere are due to livestock. The raising of livestock and the land needs to feed them has resulted in the destruction of millions of acres of rainforest and as global demand for meat rises, so too will the demand for land. 91% of all rainforest land deforested since the year 1970 is now used for livestock. Some of the negative impacts on the environment from human activity include things like acid rain, ozone depletion on vegetation, disruption of the nitrogen cycle, the impact of technologies such as mining, energy, biodiesel, etc. Manufacturing plants such as doing chemicals and paint plants, paper, plastic, pesticides, pharmaceuticals hit us. Transportation such as aviation, shipping, roads, cars, trucks, buses are all bad. 
Wars and militaries, not good. Light and sound pollution, bad. Mass fashion industries, yes, even that is bad, etc., etc., etc. In short, humans' essential modern requirements are an affront to the planet's survival. So why is that? Well, for one thing, the evolution of new narrative and the new science on environmental change began in, and there is a notable year for the discussion when it started, in the year 1896. But it was not until the 1950s and 1960s that the anti-human activity narrative actually came about. In 1955, Hans Seuss' carbon-14 isotope analysis showed that CO2 released from fossil fuels was not immediately absorbed by the ocean. In 1957, better understanding of ocean chemistry led a Roger Revelle to a realization that the ocean surface layer had limited ability to absorb carbon dioxide, also predicting the rise in levels of CO2 and later being proven by a chap called Charles David Keeling. By late 1950s, more scientists were arguing that carbon dioxide emissions could be a problem, with some projecting in the year 1959 that CO2 would rise 25% by the year 2000, with potentially radical effects on the climate. In the year 1959, a fellow named Edward Teller said, It has been calculated that a temperature rise corresponding to a 10% increase in carbon dioxide will be sufficient to melt the ice cap and submerge New York. At present, the carbon dioxide in the atmosphere has risen by 2% over normal. Then he goes on to say, By 1970, it will be perhaps 4%. By 1980, 8%. By 1990, 16%. If we keep on with our exponential rise in the use of purely conventional fuels. End quote. In 1960, Keeling demonstrated that the level of CO2 in the atmosphere was in fact rising. Concern mounted the year, concern mounted year by year along with the rise of the Keeling curve of atmospheric CO2. By the 1960s, aerosol pollution, also known as smog had become a serious local problem in many cities and some scientists began to consider whether the cooling effect of particulate pollution could affect global temperatures. Scientists were unsure whether the cooling effect of this pollution or warming effect of greenhouse gas emissions would predominate but regardless began to suspect that human emissions could be disruptive to climate in the 21st century if not sooner. In his 1968 book, The Population Bomb, Paul Elrich wrote, The greenhouse effect is being enhanced now by the greatly increased level of carbon dioxide. This is being countered by low-level clouds generated by contrails, dust and other containments. At the moment, we cannot predict what the overall climatic results will be of our using the atmosphere as a garbage dump. End quote. In the early 1970s, evidence that aerosols were increasing worldwide encouraged Reed Bryerson and some others to warn of the possibility of severe cooling. Meanwhile, there was new evidence then that the timing of ice ages was set by predictable orbital cycles, suggesting that the climate would gradually cool over thousands of years. 
For the century ahead, however, a survey of the scientific literature from 1965 to 1979 found seven articles predicting cooling and 44 articles predicting warming. Many other articles on climate made no prediction. The warming articles were cited much more often in subsequent scientific literature than the cooling or no prediction articles. A fellow named John Swayer published the study Man-Made Carbon Dioxide and the Greenhouse Gas Effect in the year 1972. He summarized the knowledge of the science at the time. The anthropogenic attribution of the carbon dioxide greenhouse gas distributed an exponential rise findings which still hold today. Additionally, he accurately predicted the rate of global warming for the period between 1972 and 2000. The mainstream news media outlets at the time exaggerated the warnings of the minority who expected imminent cooling. For example, in 1975, Newsweek magazine published a story that warned of bad signs that the Earth's weather patterns have begun to change. The article continued by stating that evidence of global cooling was so strong that meteorologists were having a hard time keeping up with it. That being said, fast forward several years, On the 23rd of October 2006, Newsweek magazine issued an update stating that it had been spectacularly wrong about the near-term future in that 1975 article. The 1979 World Climate Conference of the World Meteorological Organization of the UN concluded, It appears plausible that an increased amount of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere can contribute to a gradual warming of the lower atmosphere, especially at higher altitudes. It is possible that some effects on a regional and global scale may be detectable before the end of the century and become significant before the middle of next century. By the early 1980s, the slight cooling argument trend that had existed from 1945 to 1975 stopped. Aerosol pollution had decreased in many areas due to the environmental legislation that had been passed and changes in fuel use also helped bring it down and it became clear that the cooling effect from aerosols was not going to increase substantially while carbon dioxide levels were progressively increasing. In the year 1985, a UN conference on the assessment of the role of carbon dioxide and other greenhouse gases in climate variations and associated impacts was produced and held. It concluded that the greenhouse gases are expected to cause significant warming in the next century and that some warming is inevitable. In the meantime, ice cores drilled by a Franco-Soviet team at the Vostok station in Antarctica showed that CO2 and temperature had gone up and down together in a wide swing throughout the past ice ages. This confirmed the CO2 temperature relationship in a manner entirely independent of computer-generated climate models, strongly reinforcing the emerging scientific consensus of global warming. In 1988, the WMO established the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change with the support of the United Nations. That work continues through to today. Since the 1990s, research on climate change has expanded and grown, linking many fields such as atmospheric sciences, numerical numerical modelling, behavioural sciences, geology, economics and security. In short, something of a cottage industry around the world supporting the scientific narrative of climate change sprung up. It is important to note that multiple independently produced instrumental data sets show that the climate system 
is warming and has warmed in the recent past, with the 2009 to 2018 decade being one of the warmest on record. Currently, surface temperatures are rising by about 0.2 degrees Celsius per decade, with 2020 reaching a temperature of 1.2 degrees Celsius above pre-industrial levels. Since 1950, the number of frigid days and nights has decreased and the number of warm days and nights has increased. However, do these observed changes demonstrate a natural cycle, human activity, or do they mean both a natural cycle and a combination of human activity? Before we can answer that question, we need to address one additional question. What is the solar minimum and maximum? The solar minima and maxima are two extremes of the sun's 11-year and 400-year activity cycle. At a maximum, the sun is peppered with sunspots, solar flares erupt, and the sun hurls billion-ton clouds of electrified gas into space. Sky watchers may see more auroras, and space agencies must monitor radiation storms for astronaut protection. Power outages, satellite malfunctions, communication disruptions, and GPS receiver malfunctions are just of the few things that can happen during a solar maximum. At a solar minimum, there are fewer sunspots and solar flares, and they subside over time. Sometimes days or weeks go by without a spot. Solar minimum is the period of least solar activity in the 11-year solar cycle of the sun. During this, during this time, sunspot and solar flare activity diminishes and often does not occur at all. The date of the minimum is described by the smooth average of over 12 months of sunspot activity, so identifying the date of the solar minimum can usually happen between six months of the minimum taking place. The solar maximum, or solar max, is a regular period of the greatest sun activity during that 11-year solar cycle. During a maximum, the large number of sunspots appear and the solar irradiance output grows by about 0.07%. At a solar maximum, the sun's magnetic field lines are the most distorted due to the magnetic field of the solar equator rotating at a slightly faster pace than the solar poles. On average, the solar cycle takes about 11 years to go from one solar maximum to the next, with duration observed varying from about 9 to 14 years or so. It's important to note that large solar flares occur during a maximum. For example, the solar storm of 1859 struck the Earth with such intensity that the northern lights were visible as far south as Cuba. Predictions of a future maximum's timing and strength is very difficult, and predictions vary widely, and often fall off the mark. And then there is something called the Grand Solar Minimum. You're listening to this podcast at any point between the year 2020 and 2053. Technically, the sun has entered into the modern grand solar maximum and we are in the grand solar maximum. This will lead to a significant reduction of solar magnetic field and activity like during, I had mentioned this earlier, the modern minimum leading to a noticeable reduction of terrestrial temperature, meaning colder climates. Let me try and break this down. The sun is the main source of energy for all of the planets in the solar system. The energy is delivered to earth in a form of solar radiation in different wavelengths called total solar irradiance. 
Variations of solar irradiance lead to heating of upper planetary atmosphere and complex processes of solar energy transport that to the planet's surface. As I had mentioned earlier in the podcast, from between 1645 and 1710, the temperatures across much of the northern hemisphere of the Earth plunged when the Sun sun entered a quiet phase now called Mordra Minimum. This likely occurred because the total solar solar irradiance was reduced by 0.22% that led to a decrease of the average terrestrial temperature measured mainly in the northern hemisphere in Europe by 1.0 to 1.5 degrees Celsius. This seemingly saw a small decrease of the average temperature in the northern hemisphere led to frozen frozen rivers, cold long winters and cold and cooler summers. The surface temperature of the Earth was reduced all over the globe, especially in the countries of the Northern Hemisphere. Europe and North America went into a deep freeze. Alpine glaciers expanded over valley farmland. Sea ice crept south from the Arctic. The Thames River froze regularly during this time, as well as the famous canals of the Netherlands. The drop in temperatures was related to dropped abundance of ozone created by the solar ultraviolet lights in the atmosphere. The layer of the atmosphere located between 10 and 15 kilometers from the Earth's surface. Since during the Maunder minimum, the sun emitted less radiation, in total, including strong ultraviolet emissions, less ozone was formed, affecting planetary atmospheric waves and giant wiggles in the jet stream. So what should we expect in the 2020 to 2053 grand solar minimum? Remember, we're in it now, 2021. It's just started. This will bring to the modern era the unique low activity conditions of the sun, which occurred during the Maunder minimum. It is expected that during this modern grand solar minimum, solar activity will be reduced significantly as this happened during the previous minimum. Per scientists, just like the Maunda minimum previously, the reduction of solar magnetic field will cause a decrease of solar irradiance by about 0.22% for a duration of what they call three solar cycles. For the first modern grand minimum and four solar cycles for the second modern grand minimum. That second modern grand minimum is supposedly around the year 2370 to 2415, quite far in the future for us at this time in 2021. In short though, it's going to get really cold on the planet over the next few decades if you believe this theory. So what does this mean for you and me? Well, there is tangible evidence that the planet has gotten warmer. We have eyewitness accounts and photos of receding glaciers in places like mountaintops and the poles. We can see clear and present impact of warmer weather patterns in traditionally warmer regions. Even small islands have started to vanish into the oceans. But hold tight. The sun might have a solution. It may throw the grand solar minimum at us. And rather than warm globally, we'll have cooling globally. This too is an expected outcome from scientists. However, this concept, as of today, April 2021, is not widespread in the mainstream media. The main narrative remains human impact to climate change, 
with warming as its backbone. Undoubtedly, the history of human activity destroying the earth is compelling since we have seen changes in our own lifetimes. However, around the world, there is a cottage industry that has sprung up around the warming narrative. People have been convinced that this impending doom is inevitable partly because so much labor has been spent on the human impact negative theory. The people that run big corporations, countries, and the media have jumped on this bandwagon, real or imagined. Alternative views don't seem to seep into this narrative. Well, what can one do if the earth is getting warmer because of the humans? How do you reverse it if the sun won't save our souls with the grand solar minimum? It's very, very simple. You reduce the population of the human species. After all, it is the human activity and overconsumption that is the problem. You need to reduce the population. The five ways to do that are 1. Mass nuclear extinction event 2. Insane pandemic that, swap, that wipes 80-100% to 100% of the species 3. Asteroid impact 4. Alien invasion where the aliens eat the humans 5. Wrath of God Or you can take the much more civilized option and stop having children. But no one's doing that. No one's doing any of that. This human species, as of today, April 2021, stands at around 8 billion people, and it is growing. Worse still, the advocates that support supposedly climate-friendly or green policies, such as the 2015 to 2016 Paris Accords, are often the worst offenders of wrecking the planet. They are the rich, they are the powerful, the people who need the climate to be messed up so they can survive, eat and live for another day are the poor. We need farmland, we need meat, we need vegetables, mouths need feeding and we need water to drink. Yes, and we do need, we do need electricity. If you're living in a city like New York, London or Melbourne, ask yourself why at night the city has its lights on. Why do we want 24-7 electricity? Wi-Fi, food delivery, a car, clothes, airplanes. We want to consume and do whatever we want. That is why. Unless humans are happy to stop reproduction and live in forests and caves, willing to grow their own fruit and vegetables and hunt for themselves, good luck at saving the planet. Nothing will change. Even the climate advocates who complain about the warming climate behave in as a do-as-I-say-don't-do-as-I-do mentality. Maybe global warming is a good thing, barring the grand solar minimum. If we wreck the planet by global warming, the humans will suffer. Maybe we can wreck ourselves so much so that the population in 100 years is down to just a few million due to droughts, lack of water and the odd weather events. Remember, the Earth is millions of years old. Humans, just a few hundreds of thousand years old. Civilization, just a few thousand years old. The contribution of humans to anything is minute. We should not give ourselves so much credit about either saving or destroying the world. Nature has a way of balancing things. If we do destroy it all, in just a few thousand or even a million years, the earth will fix itself. It has a way. 
that million years to fix itself is nothing in the grand scheme of things. So if you're considering burning fossil fuels and keeping the lights on so you can have a roast chicken with vegetables for dinner, go for it. It's good for the earth. A small step in removing the planet of the pesky humans. After all, we humans are part of nature too. Nothing that we can do is outside of the bounds of nature. Please like, subscribe, rate this podcast. Thank you.